Thanks, Luke. Morning, everyone. Everyone doing good? All right. We have a great day today. Um, We're going to enter into a new series called Keep Your Love On. I think God's got some really cool stuff for us in that. And uh, let's just start by praying, all right? And uh, just encourage you to, just along with me right now, let's just say, Jesus, we open our hearts. We want to hear what you want to say. We want to be who you want us to be, what you're calling us into. So, uh, Lord Jesus, we come and uh, we thank you so much for your incredible love for us that uh, through you, the love of the Father has been poured out into our lives. We just, we honor you. Father God, thank you. I thank you for your love. Uh, Lord Jesus, thank you for, for giving yourself so we could be reunited with our Heavenly Father and Holy Spirit, you are uh, God present here with us and in this mystery of the Trinity, uh, the tr- Trinitarian God, you are here with us and Holy Spirit, we welcome your presence. Just increase your presence more and more. And you're the teacher too, Holy Spirit, and so we open our hearts to receive from you teaching, uh, speak to us, bring the healing that uh, flows with the power of God and the life of the Lord Jesus. Bring that to us today in Jesus' name. Amen. So this new series, Keep Your Love On, um, I w- had, had something happen Friday night that made me think, think these, this, uh, about some of the things I'm going to share with you today. So I want to share just a brief story. Uh, my wife and I were downtown uh, going out to dinner with uh, two other vineyard pastor couples, uh, one of them, Jason and Emily Smith, who are part of our church uh, body here, and another couple. And we were sitting outside a restaurant out on the street waiting for a table before we were served. And as we're sitting there talking, uh, this young guy comes up and uh, he stops and he says something like, will you buy me something to eat? Or can you get me something to eat? I can't remember his exact wording. But, uh, it, you know, it kind of, it, it didn't shock us at all. We're, they're a very crowded place, a lot of people. But it, but it took me a second to respond. I said, well, sure, yeah, man. Of course, I mean, everybody said that all at the same time. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll be happy to buy you something to eat. We haven't been seated yet. If you want to hang out here until we get a table in there, uh, we'll, you know, we'll get you pizza. And then, then I'm ratcheting through my brain. Okay, do, do we invite him to go in with us and sit down and eat? Or, or what do we do? And we're waiting and so I stood up to talk to him because he's standing off to the side and just ask him, you know, your name, his name and, uh, you know, where's he from? And he was from Florida. And, you know, how'd you get here in Cincinnati? And, you know, how, you know what, what's going on in your life? And he told me he came up because his mother was ill and he came up to see her before she passed away. And now he's just kind of stuck here. He's homeless, um, has no job, no food, no place to sleep. Um, you know, what about the shelters? And well, you know, he's trying to get into one shelter that would help him get work, but he doesn't have enough money to do that. And, and so we're just talking like this. And um, I just really felt like I should ask him this question. I said, so, so man, what is your plan? What are you going to do? How are you going to get out of this? And I, I don't have a plan. There's nothing I can do. I don't know anyone. And I, you know, I mean, I ask him, do you, know any, do you know anyone? Do you have any family? No, I don't have any family alive. Don't, don't know anyone. Don't have any friends. And so, well, what are you going to do? How are you going to get out of this? And he says, you know, I can't. There's nothing I can do. 
And I stood there for a second, kind of wrestling inside as to what I was going to say next. And I just thought, you know, he might not want to hear this, but I'm going to say it anyway. I said, you know, if you, if you were one of my sons, here's what I'd say to you. I think I said that. I say that often to young guys now that I'm in my mid-60s. That, that kind of helps, doesn't it, do you think? Yeah. I said, I'd tell you, do something. Something. You got to do something. And well, what, you know, what, well, and this just popped into my mind. I said, come out and pick up the litter off the streets in the morning. Do something. And he said, people would think I'm crazy if I did that. Yeah, 98% of the people would think you're crazy for doing that. But really, you're not looking for them, are you? You're you're looking for the 1% that's a shop owner that's going to come and say, dude, you're here every every day cleaning up the streets. Why are you doing that? And you just look them in the eye and you say, you know, I'm in a tough place in life. I don't, don't have a job. I'm on the street. But at least I can do this. I got to do something. At least I can do this. I said, you got to do something to distinguish yourself. P- pull yourself out of the crowd. And I didn't really, I mean, Jason's sitting right here. I didn't really feel like he was hearing that real well. But I prayed for him. And um, Jason is the guy that was with me, not the guy I was talking to, okay? Yeah. <laughs> Yes, and he's right here today. (laughs) So I said, well, I'm going to pray for you. And he was kind of felt resistant. It felt resistant to me. But I just prayed one thing. I said, Lord, give, and and I said his name, give him a contact. Give him somebody that he can get to know and, and demonstrate character to so that he'll have a way out of this. And then Jason got up right at that time and came over and we decided, Jason, stand up and wave for everybody. And Emily too, okay? Emily, come on. Okay, this is Jason and Emily Smith. They've been uh, vineyard pastors for a number of years. We're at the Mason Vineyard and they're, they're, they're here with us for a while before God spins them out wherever else he's gonna put them. Um, and... Um, so Jason gets up, and we're going down the street because we finally realized there is a pizza place right down the street where we can just buy him some pizza on the spot. And as we're walking down there, Jason says, oh, well, I have a friend uh, two blocks over, a lady I know. Here, let me write her name down for you and give it to you. And if you go over there, they might be able to help you. They help people. And, and, and I mean, my impression was he was not like, he wasn't like, oh, yeah, great, awesome. It wasn't like that. And, and I said, dude, I said, that's what I just prayed for you for is that you get a contact. I had no idea Jason was going to come and give you that. And it, he may, maybe brightened just a little bit there, but not too much. And so we go and we get him the piece of pizza. Um, now, I'm ready to buy him enough pizza for a week. You know, I would have bought him sandwiches and pizza and put them on your backpack. Pizza keeps, you know, if you, you know that. Yeah, so, but... Uh, He's just, just one slice, and Jason is saying, well, what do you want, man? Just one slice, just one slice. And so, okay, one slice and a drink. And, um, and then the, it may be a little overboard on my part, but I gave him a $20 bill as I was leaving. I didn't tell, I tried to wait. <laughs> I waited till Jason wasn't looking to do that. <laughs> because I know sometimes giving people money is not the smart thing to do, okay? But... Um, that whole thing kind of illustrates uh, something about this whole idea of keeping your love on. And, and I'm going to show you a, a diagram right now on the screen. It's called the, uh, 
triangulation diagram. There it is, okay? Um, in, in this, there is the rescuer, there's the victim, and there's the bad guy. Bad guy, another word for that is the persecutor. Um, I like persecutor because it's a little more neutral, although it's pretty bad too. But uh, in this case, this young guy we were talking to was the victim. He viewed himself as a victim because victims view themselves as helpless. Nothing they can do. If there's an answer, it's going to come from out there. Maybe I'll win the lottery. Maybe someone will just you know, come and give me. It's almost like magical thinking. If I'm ever going to get out of this, it's going to be someone else that's going to do it. And, and not a strong sense of personal responsibility or taking action or responsibility. Okay, in this case... We step into somewhere in that realm of rescuer, but we're really resisting that. I mean, as I'm talking to him, I am resisting inviting him to come and live with us. You know, we got an extra bedroom. I'm resisting that because it's not my job to rescue this guy. And that, that's why even the $20 bill, I'm wrestling with that in my mind. Should I give this to him or not? And Oh, well, I'm going to give it to him, but I, I'll wait till Jason's not looking, so... <laughs> Now I have to confess it. I have to be, yeah. Um, and that, that might have been going over a little bit on my part into the rescue side. However, I knew he needed $15 to get into this one shelter, and I'm hoping that's what he did with it. Give him some resources so he can take a step. But the bad guy in this case, the persecutor, is just life situation, life circumstances, uh, and 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 there's not like necessarily an individual there in this case, and so the persecutor can be an, an illness. It could be a um, it can be an, an accident that that impacts a person's life. But when a person views themselves from a victim mentality, then they don't view themselves as having the ability to make any choices that can possibly move them ahead. And, and part of that is just helping a person to learn and to discern and, to, and, and then to have the confidence. I mean, I just wanted to say, man, you, you're, not, you're not like everybody else here. You, you can distinguish yourself. You, you can be different than, than what you're seeing all around you. And so you, you want to speak life. But we, I think we resisted being the rescuers in this. Because um, we, didn't, we didn't take up an emotional cause for the victim. And that's what happens so often is the person who's in that triangle or in that spot gets all emotionally involved in the other person's situation and then feels like, well, I've got I've to make them feel better. I've got to make them happy in life. I've got to do something to change their situation. And I won't be happy until they're happy. And what that is, is that's mixing me with them. And what that is doing also is this. Who's really the rescuer? Who is? Everybody shout it. Jesus. Okay. Now, if I I step into his shoes and I offer a a van rescue, is it going to be as good as the Jesus rescue? No. No, it's not. But... It is somewhat of a rescue, so it might take that person out of the sense of need for a rescuer. They might not then look to Jesus to be rescued. And what I do then is I just, I'm, I'm, I'm interfering with what Jesus wants to do in their life. Does that make sense? Okay. So um, 
this is just one illustration of that, and it's just something fresh in my mind, and, and my heart does go out to this young guy. Uh, I, boy, if I could see him again, I'd talk to him more and encourage him and try to help him to make some decisions to move the right direction. So uh, it's not a matter of a lack of compassion at all, and it's not a matter of not wanting to give or to bless, but it is a matter of not allowing our emotions to become enmeshed so that we feel like we're their savior or we're the rescuer. Now, I want to give you another illustration of this, okay, Uh, from a TV show called Seinfeld. Seinfeld fans here? Okay, so track with me on this, please. Um, All right, so the setup is this. There's four friends, George, Jerry, Elaine, and Kramer. All right, they are tight friends, um, and a lot of goofy stuff happens between them. George has a girlfriend. He breaks up with his girlfriend because he doesn't like her. And Jerry, Elaine, and Kramer, and George is telling them he broke up with her, and and so George has he's thought this through. He's made a decision. Good for you, George. He's looking to Jerry, Elaine, and, si- and Kramer for support. So what do they do? If they wanted to avoid being rescuers, here's what they would have done. They would have said, George, you thought this through. I mean, in our context, we hopefully would say you prayed about it. I don't think that happened in the show. But, you know, you thought this through. You considered all your options, and you made a decision. We're proud of you, man. Way to go. You made a decision. Good job. Now, instead, do you know what they did? George, we never liked her anyway. Oh, yeah, the way she ate just drove me crazy. And she talked in this high-pitched voice that hurt my ears. And and so they're all jumping in, criticizing her. So what they were trying to do, instead of just commending George for having the nerve to think through something and make a decision, which is a good thing, they were criticizing the other person. And so they were, triangle? They were trying to, George was the victim of his own insecurity. All right? That, that's the persecutor, George's own insecurity. And they're rescuing him by telling him that this girl is really not worth it anyway. Now, here's the rub. Here's what happened. And these, these triangles, they just flip around and change all the time. But, um, and, and actually, we can move from one role to the other pretty quickly. But they, in their effort to rescue, now they become the bad guys. Do you know why? Because George made up with this girl. And he starts dating her again. And all, all of a sudden, they, the three of them are in relationship with George, the victim, who is now in relationship with um, the girl, I can't remember how, who, be, who would be what. Take the triangle off, okay? <laughs> you, you get what I'm saying, don't you? When we're focused on making someone feel good and, we, and I take responsibility for their emotional well-being, then I'm going to say stuff that is, is, you pay a price for that. And for instance, someone comes and they say, oh, my friend Joe, he let me down, and then he said this to me, and it really hurt me, and it wounded me. And I say, you poor man, that's tough, dude. That Joe is a really bad guy. As soon as I say that, I am overstepping healthy boundaries 
I'm taking up responsibility for their emotions and I'm getting involved with them emotionally. I mean, if I, if, if, if I get involved with them emotionally especially and I take up a cause against the third person, then that's, that's, that's bad news. And so what we have to do is learn, and, and this love, it just flows with all of this. Because if we don't learn these things, we're not going to be able to love. And so uh, we have to learn how to keep our love on and to avoid these, these messy triangles. So keep our love on. Let's, let's shift gears now. And let me talk about what does that phrase mean, keep your love on. You know, you could, it could mean like, keep your coat on, it's cold in here. Um, and so, you, you know, like you, something you put on or keep your hat on so the sun doesn't get in your eyes. It could mean that. There's something like that. Keep your love on. Keep trying to love people. Keep smiling. But all of that can just be external. And all of that can just be a shell, can just be a mask. And that's not what we mean by keep your love on. What we mean by keep your love on is really based on this word on and and the definition of on. And, you know, the word on is used in a lot of ways in our culture. In fact, there are a lot of little phrases that are associated with the word on. Let me read a few of them to you. Just simply like anybody from the 60s, remember right on? Yeah, right on. That's awesome, man. Cool. You're you're great. Uh, On target, on the line, on the mark, on the spot, on the hook. Or you can be a hanger on. And the list of sayings with on in it goes on and on and on. So when we're saying what does on mean, here is what we mean. The illustration for this is whole series and for this book is a light bulb. Can we have that? All right, you see it right there. This is a book, Keep Your Love On, by a guy named Danny Silk. Why did he use a light bulb? Let me show you. Uh, can we turn the lights down? All right, reduce the lights. What's happening right now? Getting dark. Did you know that light bulbs don't really burn that bright without something that they need? Power? Okay, so let's bring the lights back up. So, so turn the lights on. That's right, turn them on. Now let's keep the lights on, okay? And so keep your love on. It's, it's not our love, it's his love. It's the spirit of God flowing into us. It's the Holy Spirit producing love in us. And you keep that love on, keep the switch on for the flow of God's love. And so when we're talking about this idea of keeping the love on, we're recognizing that it isn't something external that you and I can do because we've learned these three or four steps or we read something in Reader's Digest that told us how to love other people. It is our interaction and relationship with Jesus Christ, our understanding of God the Father and his love for us, and our yieldedness to the Holy Spirit and his presence in us. Who he, he flows through us to deposit and to release God's love into us. Let's look at a couple of passages that talk about love. One of the things I want us to see is that this is not, not stuff that we can just reproduce out of willpower, out of personal willpower. 1 Corinthians 13, it describes love here, and this is a godly type of love. It says, love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. 
doesn't dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects. It always trusts. It always hopes. It always perseveres. Now, that's a pretty, pretty powerful description of what Christian love is, what godly love is. And, and I hope that as you're hearing it, you're recognizing that it's really outside the, the realm of our own personal strength to do that. And it's not something you can just pretend at. It, it, it's, it's something that has to be the reality inwardly for us. But it is misunderstood so often and so, so frequently. It's misunderstood. Uh, have any of you ever heard a, um, a spouse, husband or a wife, or someone in a relationship that says, you know, I'm really tired of being walked all over. I feel like a doormat. I, I feel like I'm being used and abused. I never get my own way. And I'm really tired of that. But I can't get my own way because that wouldn't be loving. That wouldn't be like Jesus. You, you ever hear that? Okay, that, that's just a real misunderstanding of what godly love is. Or, uh, for instance, um, of, of family that maybe takes an adult child back into the home. And there's nothing wrong with that. We've had our kids at different key moments come back and live with us for short periods of time as they were being launched out or as they were moving and they had, you know, overlap. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but have you ever heard of it, a situation where a kid moves back home, no job, says they're going to get a job but never look for a job. They eat food, they sleep, and they play video games. And the parent, at least one of the two, is saying, oh my, we, 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 we have to provide for them because that's Christian love. That's being a godly parent. You, you ever you understand a, a situation like that is a misunderstanding of what godly love is and a misunderstanding of what uh, the Holy Spirit really wants to do through us when it, when it comes to love. You see, for us to understand love, the first thing we really have to begin to grasp is God the Father's love for us. We have to understand our identity in Christ and his incredible love for us because he has a love for us that goes beyond anything that we can imagine and beyond our, our um, living up to it. In Matthew 5, Jesus talks about love and he draws the, the Father's heart right into it when he says this. He said, you've heard that it was said... Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Just stop right there and look at that. What kind of God, love does God have? He has, he has this freely given love, um, love that is not based upon performance, but love that's based upon his own moving of his own heart towards us. And so he goes on to say this. He says, he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are, you not, are not even the tax collectors doing that? The tax collectors were considered to be like the bottom rung of society in that day. And so uh, even, even these people that don't, know anything about God. He's saying they know how to love people that love them, but a God, godly love is a love that is motivated by 
that person's heart, by God's heart, it's freely given. We receive it even though we don't deserve it. And when we begin to see ourselves in light of God, the Father's love for us, and we begin to see, just to see, okay, God, you love me. I don't have to, I don't have to, I, I don't have to do anything. I don't have to perform. I am worthy because you've chosen to love me. And when I really begin to grasp that, then there's something that frees up in my heart and enables me then to begin to love other people with freedom. And so the, the, the idea of the Father's love for us, Romans 5, 8, and our identity in this unfailing love of the Father. Romans 5, 8 says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Okay, while I was a sinner, I, I wasn't like seeking God. It wasn't like I was trying so hard and I had improved myself so much that God said, oh, you're starting to look like me. I think I'm going to love you. In fact, the Old Testament verse says that before we know Jesus, that, that, that because all humanity has fallen, before we know Jesus, it's like we have hearts of stone. Been created in God's image, he created us for himself, but we rebelled against and we turned away from him. And it's like we have hearts of stone towards him. And he says, I'm going to do something someday. I'm going to do this new thing. I'm going to take out the heart of stone and I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. And that's what God did for us when Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. Not just that I can be forgiven for my sins, which is wonderful in and of itself, and all that guilt and all the self-recrimination dealt with, forgiven, but he also takes the heart of stone out and implants a heart. He, in, the, in the passage, it says a heart of flesh, but what he means is a heart that can respond to God, that knows who God is, that looks at him and says, Father. And that's why in Romans 8, it says that from, from the depths of our hearts with the Holy Spirit stirring us, we cry out, Abba, Father. That's one of the characteristics of being a believer, is the new heart that suddenly recognizes God's my Father, He's not mad at me. He's not out to get me. He's not sitting there with a club ready to hammer me as soon as I step out of line. He is my father and he loves me and he cares for me and I am secure in that love that he has for me. And when I begin to understand that and I begin to grasp that, then there's something happens in me in the way I view other people because I start to view other people through God the Father's eyes. And how does God the Father love? He loved us even while we were sinners. He loved us even when we didn't love him. And so I look around and I see other people and I see someone that maybe they do something that irritates me. I look past that and I see the gold in them. I see the beauty in them. I just look past the irritations and the offenses and I see who they really are because Jesus is there. And so I, I look past that and I see Jesus there. And I'm able to love them then like God does. I'm able to love them. And, and if the person doesn't yet know Jesus, hey, they're created in God's image. That makes them beautiful and wonderful and amazing. I mean, to be created in the image of God is an incredible thing. And so I look at them and I see all of that beauty and wonder. And, and boy, I see them with the potential to open their heart to Jesus and everything God's going to do in them and through them. And it just gives me this new view of life. Gives me a new ability to look at people and to relate to them and to allow God's love then to flow through me. 
and, and, and to bless them and to keep the love on. You know, it's like you walk into a room, you flip the light switch on. Hey, leave that light on. I'm reading. Don't turn the light off. You know, someone else comes in. No, leave the light on. And so that, keep the love on. Keep the love on. Don't turn this, don't flip the switch. So Romans 5, 5 talks about uh, this incredible presence of the Holy Spirit in us. And he says this. He says, hope, and he's talking about hope in Christ. Hope doesn't disappoint us or put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. All right, when he says hope doesn't disappoint or hope doesn't put us to shame, um, the idea there is if I put my hope in someone and then they falter, they fall, then I look and I think, why did I ever put my hope in them in the first place? You know, what a fool. I shouldn't have, I shouldn't have trusted them in the first place. He, he's saying here that never happens with Jesus. Never. You put your hope in Jesus and it is fulfilled. He will never let you down. There will ne- you, you'll never have cause to look back and say, what a dummy. Why did, you know, why did, why did I put my trust there? Never happened. And then he goes on. He says, we know that because right now we are experiencing the pouring out of the Holy Spirit into us, and he just assures us of God's love. And the Holy Spirit floods into us and assures us of God's love. That word pours out, it's, it's like a word that means to gush out. You know, you can pour something out in just a little dribble, and it's just a little tiny trickle. This is more like, you know, like at the end of a football game when they chase the coach down with the, with the five gallons of Gatorade. That's what he's talking about. It's gushing out. It's just like dump, dump. The Holy Spirit just pours out God's love onto us. And when we experience that and we walk in that, and we're walking free of the shames of the past, and we're walking with these new eyes that see other people in the way God sees them, then love flows. And love flows. What we call that, that in the book, we're calling that person a powerful person. And we don't mean powerful in the sense of the way our world might use it today, where powerful means you get your way, you know how to push other people aside and make the agenda. We're not talking about that kind of power. We're talking about people that are able to recognize who they are in Christ. I, I have a definition actually here for powerful. Why don't we take a look at that? Is that up on the screen yet? Thank you. He says, I'm willing to be responsible. Uh, powerful is a person who says, I'm willing to be responsible for my life and the choices I make. And, and how is that? Well, it's because I know Jesus is in me. I know he is. I know I don't have to make perfect decisions to walk with God or to love God or to have God's blessing in my life. And so I can make decisions and think, okay, that's the decision. Now let's see how God's going to use that. I mean, I'm not talking about making awful decisions where I'm hurting other people or a decision where I'm intentionally stepping outside God's, God's uh, word and doing something immoral or something unethical. I'm not talking about that type of decision. But, you know, like we have decisions to make and there are three options and you pick one, and you move ahead, and God can bless any one of those three. That makes me a person who can live with confidence. And, and I can, we call them powerful people because I, have, I can make choices then. I'm not compelled to do what I think is going to fit in with what the other people want me to do around me. I'm not compelled to do the thing that I think is going to make you happy. Even though I want to make you happy, I want you to be happy. But not my job 
to take up responsibility for that. And so when I really understand God's love poured out in my life, and I really understand that he's, his love's poured out in your life too, then I can let you be responsible to him and I'll be responsible to him, okay? And, and, and again, I'm not, I'm not talking about stepping on people's toes or being unkind or saying mean things or just saying whatever's on my mind because that's truth, irregardless of the context. But we're, we're talking about just having this sense of confidence about God's work in us and through us. And I especially think this concept of, I don't have to make perfect decisions, you know, I, 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 for years I labored under that and I'd go to all these pastor's conferences that would tell you how to make the perfect decision and then I'd come back and I'd work through everything and we've arrived at the perfect decision and then some key person that I forgot to include comes up and, oh, that's not the perfect decision. You know, this other thing is the perfect... And so now it's just like, okay, there might be three options. God can use any one of the three. I mean, we want to spend time praying. We want to spend time seeking God. We want to spend time thinking and listening but God can use any one of these three and bless my life and bless the church's life with it. And when we, when we find that kind of peace about ourselves, then I can be at peace with what's happening in your life too. And I don't feel like I have to invite every person I run into home to live with me because that's the Jesus thing to do. Now, maybe sometimes I do. That, 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 that's not a bad thing to do. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that there aren't times when that is what we should do. But if I feel the compulsion to do that, then I'm mixed up somehow in, in my own personal peace and relationship with the Lord. So the powerful people, they, um, they're led by Jesus. And because they're led by Jesus, they can make the choice to serve others. They can choose to serve others. It's not the compulsion because I'm fearful of how you respond or how the other... Then powerless people, um, definition for that we're saying is I'm unwilling to take responsibility for my life and ultimately I don't have a choice. Now the person wouldn't actually say this, I don't believe. And all of us can flip back and forth between these two. And you realize we can flip back and forth between these two depending upon the relationship. Some people will be a powerful person at work and a powerless person at home just because of all the relational dynamics. And so, um, but the powerless person feels like they have no choices and they feel like they are a victim of whatever is being thrown at them in life. And consequently, there's almost like, well, there's some of the language that's used by powerless people is, I can't, or um, I have to. Yeah, boy, I'd like to come, but I have to cut the grass. Well, what do you mean you have to cut the grass? Is someone going to shoot you if you don't cut the grass? <laughs> is, is that what's going to happen? You know, I have to go to school or I have to do this. I have to do that. I mean, don't you like having a job so you can get food and eat food? I mean, do you like pizza? Yeah, well, going to your job enables you to get pizza. So it's not something you have to do. It's a good thing to do. You know, I, I can't go, I'm going to work is different than I can't go with you, I have to go to work. It's different than I can't do that because I have to go to school. I can't do that because I have to spend time with my aunt or my friend or my husband or my wife. See, those are all powerless statements and they kind of reveal this victim type of thinking. And I, and I know, we all say stuff that we aren't even thinking about. 
Uh, okay, so I'm not saying that you have to look back over your past week and count how many times you've said I have to or I can't and then you know, rate yourself. But I am saying let, let, let's, let's let God be responsible for other people's emotions and feelings and thoughts and take responsibility for our own and trust Jesus with the outcome of that. That's what this is all about. And so this whole uh, victim thing and the triangle... Um, uh, just a couple thoughts on that. I've touched on a lot of this already. But let, let's look at the actual definitions. A rescuer is a person who takes responsibility for another person's life in order to rescue them from negative consequences. It makes the rescuer feel good, powerful, and needed. And, and it makes the rescuer feel like their life is in order. You know, the rescuer is also a person that wants their whole life to be in order, and if you're part of my life and your life is out of whack, then my life is out of whack. And so it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a something that we all kind of get drawn into. Classic illustration is taken um, from the, the course Danny Silks uh, wrote a course on child rearing based on these principles. And uh, the classic illustration, I think, is the kid that leaves their lunch at home. They forgot their lunch. What are you going to do? You know, the kid calls and says, Mom, I, f- I forgot my lunch. Well, okay, honey, I will cancel my appointments this morning. I, I won't take a shower today. I won't go to Pilates or the Bible study. Instead, I will rescue you by bringing you your lunch. Now, one of the, th- that, that was more how I would have done it, okay, in our parenting, just to be Lori's not here, but I'm the one that would say, oh my, I got to get my lunch to my kid. You know, call the office, cancel my appointments. I'm taking my lunch to my kid's lunch to school. Lori would say, they should have remembered their lunch. (laughs) How are they ever going to learn if you're always running behind them, taking care of everything that they were careless about? And so the the rescuer is that that's a role that just it keeps other people from being responsible to Jesus. Instead, in the video uh, presentation of this Danny Silk story, instead it is, oh, honey, I'm so sorry you forgot your lunch. That really is too bad. What are you going to do? <laughs> well, I was going to call you and have you bring it. Oh, honey, I'm so sorry, but, you know, I have other things I have to do this morning. I can't bring your lunch to you. What are you going to do? How are you going to handle this? Well, I don't know what to do. Well, you could talk to the lunch ladies and see if they would, you know, give you some food, or you could ask a friend. Maybe they'll share their food with you. And, and mean, meanwhile, there's this in emotional intensity happening on the other end of the phone. I can't do that. I can't ask the lunch. That'd be embarrassing. I can't ask my friends. That'd be embarrassing, and on and on. And, well, honey, I'm really sorry uh, for what's happening now, but I, you're going to figure it out. I know you can figure this out. We'll see you later, sweetie. Bye-bye. <laughs> That's pretty cool, isn't it? So then in the story, you know, even if you're a grandparent, Lori and I took that parenting class. It was the best thing we've ever done, I think. I just, everybody ought to take it. Uh, Jason and Emily are teaching it right now. But um, later that day, the kid's coming home, and, you know, they're all braced for what's the storm going to come with, you know, you didn't bring me my lunch, and it was the most horrible day of my life, and now I'm not going to go to college. I'm going to, you know, I'm probably going to marry a dropout, and, you know, my life is ruined. 
And she just comes dancing through the front door, happy as can be, never mentions the lunch or anything. And finally, they get around to saying, well, hey, honey, how'd the, how'd the lunch thing work out? Oh, that was no problem. I just shared with Sally. So it, it's like we, we get, it, it's so easy for us to take up this emotional stuff from other people. And instead of helping them to see what are steps they can take, how, how are you going to figure this out, you and God? Because even though you're only in seventh grade, Jesus is with you too. And he's going to help you figure this out. If you just say, Jesus, you're my rescuer. Show me what to do next. How am I going to work this out? And so that rescuer role, uh, we get drawn into that pretty quickly and easily, some of us. But the victim role is, uh, is the person who feels powerless and looking for someone else to save them. Already talked about that some. But it's a very popular role in our culture today. And honestly, a lot of people have gone through incredibly hard things, incredibly painful things, difficult things, and maybe have been put in a position in culture where they, they just have not had chances. I'm, I'm not, we're not denying any of that and don't want to be unmerciful or unkind at heart or, or lack compassion. But um, if, if, if anybody's going to move ahead, they're going to have to come to a point that they that they recognize Jesus is my rescuer, therefore I am no longer a victim. See, Jesus died so we don't have to live like victims. So we don't have to live with that as our identity. You know, I I can study, I can make a decision, I can make a step ahead, I can trust Jesus with that. And so um, that victim role is one that is so popular. And then, of course, the bad guy, there are real bad guys. I mean, people that are human beings that are real bad guys, there are. And, um, and then sometimes it's just that maybe because of my background and some of my um, tendencies, I might view you as the bad guy at the moment when you really aren't. You might just be the healthy guy. <laughs> you might be the guy that's really trusting Jesus, but I want you to be a rescuer. And you're not going to be my rescuer right now. So, well, if you're not going to rescue me, then I'm going I'm to make you feel like the bad guy. Yeah, so you're going to be the bad guy. I had that happen once with a guy that came into the office. It was winter. He didn't have a coat, gloves, hat. And, and he's telling me his long story. And, and uh, you know, I'm listening. And then he started heaping guilt on about some different things in our culture today that are very relevant and pastors and churches. And I ended up giving the guy my coat, my hat, and my gloves. It was my favorite coat. And you know what I'm thinking as I'm doing this? I'm thinking, well, I'm going to give my best away. Uh-huh. Yeah, I think I'm going to honor Jesus right now and give my best away. And I still don't know if I did the right thing or not. I mean, maybe I really was honoring Jesus by doing that. But I know there was a good mixture of me being a rescuer involved in that too. And so it's, it's, just, it's just so easy. But um, uh, the, the, the rescuer, the, the victim will flip and try to make the, re- the, the you feel like a bad guy if if you're really just not willing to rescue them. And, um, and of course, we, know, we, know we don't want to be the bad guy. All right? We don't want to be the bad guy. I mean, in the real sense of really persecuting someone or doing something to hurt someone or lying to them or cheating them or stealing or letting them down in some, some major way. So all of these things come down to me. I, I'm a new creation. I have this new Jesus heart in me. You know, created in the image of God, Fall part of a fallen race, get a stony heart, 
Jesus dies on the cross to break that. He was resurrected from the dead. God comes, and when I look at him and I say, Jesus, come on in, come into my life, he pulls that stony heart out and he gives me a Jesus heart. And so I've got a Jesus heart now, and the Holy Spirit's flowing into me, and I just, I just need to keep saying yes, 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 and learning new thought patterns that are going to hinder the flow. You know, sometimes the lights flicker because there's a hindrance to the flow. Some of the thought patterns we have and the old habits we have hinder the flow. That's what we're going to be talking about throughout this series. So um, uh, it's going to be awesome. We're going to have a great time over the course of the upcoming weeks and, and, and really get some new levels of freedom in our lives. All right, so worship's team is going to come out, and Luke's going to come out and lead us in the offering, and then we're just going to uh, go into worship. So.